This week, Hong Kong, China, and the United States. In just a moment, our conversation with Danielle Pletka. Her expertise includes foreign policy and defense issues. She currently serves as a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, here in Washington. China is imposing new national security laws against Hong Kong, leading to unrest and demonstrations in the streets. That from the streets of Hong Kong and this past week, FBI Director Christopher Wray in a major policy speech outlining one of Beijing's objectives, making the argument that China is America's biggest global threat. China, the Chinese Communist Party, believes it's in a generational fight to surpass our country in economic and technological leadership. Now, that's sobering enough, but it's waging that fight not through legitimate innovation, not through fair and lawful competition, and not by giving their citizens the freedom of thought and speech and creativity that we treasure here in the United States. Instead, China is engaged in a whole-of-state effort to become the world's only superpower by any means necessary. That from the FBI Director Christopher Wray. In just a moment, AEI's Danielle Pletka, but first, some background on Hong Kong. This from the YouTube program, The Daily Conversation. Throughout modern history, world powers have repeatedly fought over this strategically valuable land. Its name means fragrant harbor in Chinese, but it could also mean city of change. This is the story of Hong Kong. The first wave of people to arrive in large numbers had fled Genghis Khan and his brutal Mongol hordes. They chose Hong Kong because of its advantageous geography. 150 million years ago, volcanic eruptions formed a deep but narrow harbor with an island on the other side. This orientation protected ships from storms and allowed vessels to come and go quickly from either side. With 230 islands, the region was the perfect hangout for pirates. One of the most successful in history was Madame Ching, who, alongside her husband, commanded 80,000 buccaneers and a fleet of 800 ships. In the early 1800s, British merchants found Hong Kong the perfect port to unload the opium they had brought from India. And so with that background, let's turn to Danielle Pletka. She serves as a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. In a recent essay you wrote for The Dispatch, quote, Despite tough talk from the West, including the U.S. and Great Britain, you don't think China expects any retaliation from its actions in Hong Kong. Can you explain? I think that the the Chinese are wagering to themselves that most Western economies will uh, will decide that it's not worth the effort, that the loss to them of potential business in Hong Kong or in China will be such that they will temper their response. They will uh, they will decide not to mess with Beijing. I'm not sure they're right about that, but I think that's Beijing's calculus. And your piece is titled Between War and Capitulation. My question, is there anything in the middle? Well, that's that's what I try to say in the piece, you know, is that, that when people are offered a, a, you know, a binary sort, you know, well, I mean, we can go to war or we can do nothing. A little bit, you know, a little bit like, um, well... Let's not cast dispersions for the moment uh, and wait till have to have that fun later. Um, but but of course, there are things that, that the United States can do, even in places where we need to commit troops. 
there are options for us, and there are plenty of places where we have interests, but absolutely no desire to to commit troops. Hong Kong is is one of those challenges, but frankly, there are there are plenty of others. Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia's takeover of Crimea wasn't something that was a, a casus belli for the United States, but we were actually able to you know do something to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. That's really what I think is between war and capitulation. So what is at stake for Hong Kong, for the Chinese government, and for the U.S.? Well, I think it's important that people understand just, you know, just what the background here is. You know, China had the option of sitting on its proverbial hands for another, uh, another 29 years and then, and then being uh, allowed to have a wholesale takeover. But what was promised to the, the British when they handed Hong Kong to the Chinese in 1997 was, was one country – China two systems in other words a system in Hong Kong that would that would afford the people of Hong Kong the kinds of freedoms that they had come to enjoy under British sovereignty and those are now completely being taken away and I think this is for many people a sign that Beijing has decided no more Mr. Nice Guy. We are no longer going to be doing business with people by charm. We are going to be doing business with people by force. You heard that argument by the FBI director that China's objective is to become the world's leading superpower. When you hear that, what's your reaction? You know, it, it, it's a hard one, and, and he's gotten some, some blowback for, for saying that. But I think that it's pretty clear that that is China's long-term ambition. You know, we in the United States are not great at the long game, but a lot of our adversaries are. And uh, when we try to tune ourselves to that kind of thinking, um, that kind of patient um, foreign policy that delivers in the end, I think we need to recognize that at the end of, of, of Beijing's foreign policy is, in fact, you know, superpower status. It is global domination. And while they are certainly focused more on their neighborhood now, that doesn't mean that they're going to stay there in the future. Well, to your point, U.S. tends to look a couple of years down the road. China is looking down the road maybe 50 to 100 years that's right. And, and look, they think that, you know, they think that, 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 uh, that Beijing needs to right an historic wrong uh, as a country that was, in their view, unjustly marginalized. Uh, the AES and Blumenthal has done terrific writing uh, on this. And, uh, you know, and, and that they will once again take their rightful place. A country that didn't have that ambition wouldn't be pouring the kind of money into its military, into building up artificial islands in the South China Sea, into the kinds of industries that China has invested in as a country um, like Huawei that really are meant to undercut foreign companies and to extend Beijing's domination into the cyberspace. And in your piece for The Dispatch, you point out some potential parallels between what we're dealing with today between Hong Kong and China and what President Barack Obama dealt with regarding Syria. Can you explain that point? Well, you're giving me the opportunity to come back to to the criticism that I wanted to articulate. One of the biggest disservices that I think that Barack Obama um, 
gave to the American people was the suggestion that if the United States isn't willing to put 100,000 boots on the ground, then, in fact, we are powerless to do anything in situations like Syria. And the, the answer is, you know, fundamentally, that is not true. The experience that we had of the Cold War and what was then called the Reagan Doctrine was that there were plenty of places where we had absolutely no interest in putting boots on the ground, places like Mozambique, places like El Salvador, places like Angola, where people nonetheless wanted to fight for their freedom. We had allies, not perfect allies, but we had allies who were interested in ridding themselves of foreign domination, in ridding themselves in those instances of of communist domination. And the same was true in Syria. We had allies on the ground who didn't want to live under Assad, who wanted to live in freedom, who didn't want to be part of Iran's larger uh, group of satellite countries. And we could have supported them much more than we did. We could have done much more for them than we did. And perhaps we could have done something to help avert half a million deaths. We are talking with Danielle Pletka, her work for The Dispatch. She's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And let me add further context to your point and go back to a speech back in 1992, two years before his death, former President Richard Nixon discussing the Cold War, talking about communism. This is what he said back then. And my question at the outset is, are there lessons today? Let's listen. The Cold War is over and we have won it. It's time to come home. Uh, That's only half true. It is true that as far as the Cold War is concerned, the communists have lost it. It is not true, however, that the free world has won it. What we have to realize is that the Cold War was not the traditional war over territory by great powers. It was a war of ideas, the ideas of communism versus the ideas of freedom. Uh, We can see that war most clearly in Russia. In Russia, the place where the seeds of the idea of communism were first planted. The Russian people uh, reaped the very bitter harvest from those seeds that had been planted. And as a result, the Russian people rejected communism. They rejected it because it didn't work. But now freedom is on trial. And if freedom does not work, the Russian people are not going to return to communism because it failed. But they will return, in my view, to what I would call a new despotism in which they trade their freedom for security. As you listen to that, Richard Nixon, former president back in 1992, can that be applied today to China and what we're seeing in Hong Kong? Well, you know, it's remarkable. I I never thought I never thought I would uh, would (laughs) would think to myself, wow, I miss that the clarity of Richard Nixon. But I think that, you know, look, he was he was actually right about Russia uh, as well and quite, quite far seeing. You know, this is before before the rise of Vladimir Putin. And yet he seems almost to to predict it. And there's no question that, you know, freedom is a is a constantly evolving project that uh, that, in fact, you know, as you look at as you look at these authoritarian states, what we learned you know, in the Arab Spring, is that what comes in the aftermath of of totalitarianism, of authoritarianism, whether it's by the Communist Party of China or it's by the Soviet Union or, frankly, it's by the Hosni Mubarak's of Egypt, what comes afterwards is not simple and requires understanding, requires architecture, requires investment. 
And without those things and without those investments by outsiders like the United States, you end up with you end up with problems. So, you know, what what we're looking at for China is is, you know, a, a, a very dangerous government that is creeping towards totalitarianism that represents a threat. And yet our options are not, you know, war with China. Our options, we hope, are to turn China in a different direction. The prospects for that are difficult. In your essay for The Dispatch, you talk about the foreign policy tools. So what are those tools? Well, you know, let's talk about let's let's just talk about what we could be doing, what we could be doing in terms of China. But I think these are these are really universal Look, in each in, in any country where people don't have freedom, whether it's political freedom, economic freedom, civil freedoms, religious freedoms. There are those who yearn to be free and they need help. They need tools and they aren't the same tools in each place. I'll give you a perfect example in Iran. The, the government has taken over all labor unions. People don't want to be in government-run labor unions. They want to be able to organize for themselves, and they want to be able to resist the government when they need to. They need help. In Hong Kong, we have unbelievably powerful um, dissidents, Joshua Wong, Martin Lee, and others who have risked their lives uh, and their livelihoods to stand for freedom. They need our help. They need us to stand up for them, and they need us to impose costs on the Chinese government for their behavior. Christian churches in in China, the Uyghurs in China, a million Muslim Chinese who are in concentration camps. All of these things should have consequences for the Chinese. They have gotten away so long, Scott, breathe that they think they have impunity. The essay is titled Between War and Capitulation, available on The Dispatch. Our conversation with Danielle Pletka. She's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We are focusing on the situation in Hong Kong. You're listening to The Weekly on C-SPAN Radio. The next six months, this is an election year, of course, here in the U.S. What do you think the situation is going to continue to look like in Hong Kong from China? I think that the Chinese are going to are going to stand pat. They're they're not going to want to to back down uh, because, well, frankly, that's not something they do, and because historically they've been rewarded for toughing things out. You know, uh, whether it is the island building that they've been doing over the last fifteen years in the South China Sea, or it is their various predations against Hong Kong. You know, their their attitude is you will come around. We are not going to. The only thing I'd say is they may be facing a different kind of a world post-COVID than they were pre-COVID. What would a second Trump administration mean for China? And conversely, if Joe Biden is elected, a new Democratic administration? So that is a fantastic question, and it's one that's very much on people's minds. You know, uh, on the on the one hand, uh, Donald Trump has has been as tough as any president has been on China. He uh, he has uh, he has gone after them for intellectual property theft that they have gotten away with for years. He has gone gone after them on abuse of the international trading system, and and good for him for having done so. I think the concern that a lot of people have, and, and we can extend this to Hong Kong, he's now faced with signing a 
punitive measure passed on Capitol Hill last week uh, that would levy sanctions on businesses that are doing business uh, and helping the Chinese in Hong Kong, including some very big banks. I think a lot of the fear that people have is that he's so transactional that if he can get some sort of a trade deal, even a pretty lousy trade deal, he may be willing to back down on some of those hard stances. As far as Joe Biden is concerned, I think we really don't know. You know, so much of what we see from the Democratic Party right now is through the filter of Donald Trump. You know, we won't do this because Donald Trump is doing this. You know, a a party that, for example, was completely unconcerned about what Russia was up to when Barack Obama was president, you know, with what we would call the great line uttered in the debate uh, with Mitt Romney, the 1980s are calling and they want their foreign policy back. It was uh, it was very funny, but it, 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 of course, wasn't true. And uh, and Russia is a major threat now, of course, the party is very alive to the threat because Donald Trump has seemed soft on on. Russia. I hope that this will not be, you know, the opposite on China. I hope that if there's a Biden administration, they will be as tough as Joe Biden has suggested that he would be in his advertising. Certainly that's not been his history, but times are now different. From your perspective, how can we best understand the Beijing government and in particular Xi Jinping? Well, I don't want to put myself out as an expert on 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 Xi Jinping or or on the Beijing government. Everything I've learned has basically come from from my really really fantastic Asia colleagues at at AEI, and what they have have written and what they've certainly taught me and others is that Xi Jinping is a very different kind of leader than his predecessors. He has used the pretext of an anti-corruption campaign to purge the Communist Party of any potential threats. He is um, a much more dangerous man, frankly, than his predecessors. He has stepped up Beijing's regional aggression, regional interference. He has stepped up xenophobic um, uh, nationalism inside China. So you hear lots more um, invading against, for example, the Japanese. Um, and you know, when we look at Hong Kong, one of the things we fear most is that the United States will be presented with an invasion of Taiwan, which China claims to itself, which China claims is part of its um, uh, of its nation and which the United States is committed to defend. I know we don't want to get into a war over Taiwan. A lot of people are worried that Xi Jinping is so far over his skis that he may in fact consider such a thing. And of course, all of this as we see the situation in Hong Kong, China imposing those new security laws. Lily Kuo is the Beijing bureau chief for the London Guardian. And on the website, theguardian.com, she explained what's at stake. Hong Kongers will often say that we have, you know, we have, we just want to keep our way of life. And that's what's interesting about the protests is that they actually aren't advocating for independence or anything more. They just want China to leave them alone. So for Hong Kongers, Hong Kong is very separate and very different from mainland China. It is somewhere where you have a free and independent press, where people have political freedoms, they have the right to say what they want, they have the right to go out and protest and march. People feel a sense of trust in the court system and rule of law. The national security law threatens all of that. It represents a sort of accumulation of years of Chinese encroachment 
on Hong Kong. And that from the Beijing bureau chief for the London Guardian. But Daniel Pletka, this does seem like a transformational moment for Hong Kong. I think that's absolutely right. I, I think it is. It is the beginning of the end of that free press, uh, of that rule of law, of that ability of Hong Kong people to express themselves. And one of the other things that people have suddenly focused on as a, as a secondary matter is that that security law that's been imposed on Hong Kong that has been the pretext now for the arrest of several people already is extraterritorial. In other words, the Chinese government is suggesting that you and I, based on this conversation, could in fact be indicted in China or in Hong Kong for saying things that are vaguely critical of the Chinese Communist Party. This begs the question about whether any of us are safe going through China or Hong Kong. It really changes Hong Kong's relationship with the world. And of course, big tech companies, most notably Facebook and others, a factor in all of this. Newly Purnell is a Wall Street Journal reporter based in Hong Kong. This is his perspective on what's happening. Big tech companies could be asked to provide whatever information they have on users. Depending on the service, it could be their IP address, the email address they signed up with. What it stipulates, part of it is that tech companies have to monitor and regulate their platforms more closely, and they may have to give details on their users to the Beijing-controlled Hong Kong government here. And of course, that is another variable in all of this. Absolutely. Look, what we've, you know, what we've seen is that, for example, Zoom, which we've all used, uh, was rooting some of its uh, calls through Beijing. The Chinese asked them to, uh, to close down the accounts of several people who they felt had offended them, and Zoom did so. They've backtracked on that. Um, the government of India just outlawed the unbelievably popular at least speaking only for my house, uh, TikTok app, which uh, which many fear is um, is a Chinese backdoor to, to the rest of the world, uh, the rest of the world devices, to our phones, to our iPads, to our computers, and we should have no doubt that the Facebooks and the Googles and everybody else are going to be put on the spot. They are going to be asked for data. They have in the past shared data with the communist government in Beijing and it's going to they're going to be in a very very invidious position. So let me go back to your essay for the dispatch and you frame this in terms of how President Reagan dealt with the Soviet Union and the Cold War. You write the following quote with concerted pushback China will not be able to defend every corner of its growing sphere of influence. So what's next? Well, that's really what we need to do. We need to start pushing back on on the Chinese everywhere, not simply for what happened in Hong Kong or for the Uyghurs uh, in, in, in Xinjiang, but for what they're up to in the South China Sea, for the pressure that they're putting their neighbors in East Asia under on economic issues, for their intellectual property theft, their rampant intellectual property theft. And as I said, the one thing that I do think has helped us is that this COVID pandemic has been a wake-up call. It has slapped a lot of governments in the face, to use a, to use a, 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 you know, a metaphor that, that, that I hope is apt. Um, it, 
governments that didn't want to recognize the threat that China posed, the British government installing Huawei equipment, for example, the German government doing the same, a lot of them have sat up and taken notice about the lying that's gone, about the gone on, about the manipulation of international organizations from Beijing, and they recognize that they need to push back. So if we can, most importantly, if we can together do this, if we can do this with our allies, we may well force the Chinese to begin to recalculate their interests. But as you well know, one of the underlying issues is there is not a whole lot of trust between the U.S. and China. And despite an often bumpy road, different players, different circumstances and a different time. But there was a level of trust between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. That's absolutely true. And I don't see I don't see uh, a perestroika or a, a glasnost coming uh, in Beijing. Uh, to the contrary, you know, as, as my colleagues have written, Xi Jinping is, is, is no Gorbachev. And, and to the contrary, almost all communist parties around the world watched what Gorbachev did and resolved that that was not going to ever be them because, of course, they weren't pleased with how it ended. I think for us, this is much more a question of of keeping China between certain guardrails, of containing their spread, of ensuring that they don't drag us toward conflict. All of those things are, are, are what is necessary for us to begin to actually push back. I don't see any likelihood that any of this kind of uh, uh, either tactical or strategic pushback is going to result in a transformation in Beijing. Danielle Pletka, she is a senior fellow on foreign and defense policy issues for the American Enterprise Institute. She's also an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University. You're the author of a number of books. What's next for you? Oh, lots of fun. Going back to going back to Georgetown in September is going to be quite an adventure. That's that's the first part. So we're not quite sure whether our students are going to be there, have to be there, be disembodied. And then I'm working with a number of my colleagues uh, uh, around Washington on some on some uh, international organization reform. That is a, a nice evergreen topic that will keep us busy for a while. And of course, your essay is available on the Dispatch. Thanks for joining us here on C-SPAN's The Weekly. Thanks for having me. And a reminder, this program is available as a podcast. You can find it on the web at cspan.org slash podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington.